We are a new community. We are called to be a people of grace. We are made up of every tribe and tongue. This is Race and Grace, a preaching series from New Community Church. Yeah, this is a gospel issue. It's deeply rooted in God's plans and purposes. It always has been. So we can track it from creation, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, throughout church history, until, as we've just heard from James, the end of time, our future. So race and grace is not a 21st century thing. It's not an agenda. It's not a new thing at all. We are not the first generation of the Christian church. <laughs> right at the beginning, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this verse alone has two immediate implications for us. One, we are made in God's image, regardless of our gender, cultural heritage, race, class, or creed. And secondly, because we are made in the image of God, we have inherent value and intrinsic worth. Which means, when people are not treated with worth, value, and dignity, when they are looked down on by others, or treated with disrespect or dishonor, God takes this seriously. Because we're talking about His image. In fact, this is an affront to God. See, at the heart of any racial or any other tension is a deeply held hostility towards people who are different from us. The Bible teaches that at the heart of the sinful human predicament, there is a deep separation from God and from people. Titus 3.3 tells us that we are by virtue of a sinful nature, being hated and hating one another. See, so we all come into God with preloaded bias and prejudices. This is as a result of our nature, our culture, society, the value systems that we share, that shapes and influences us today. You are all noble men and women. I know you've been anticipating this. Paul, speaking to some Jews he met at Berea in Acts 17.11, says that these Jews were more noble than the ones he had met in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. James has structured for us to discuss this next few weeks in our community groups to interact, scrutinize, and challenge ourselves on this topic of race and grace. 
Now, if you feel you need to conceal what you think and believe during these discussions for fear of appearing different, then frankly, these discussions in our community groups is futile, it's just a waste of time. There may be a misguided optimism that thinks that difference is threatening, that difference is negative or even harmful. Whereas if we all had a uniform agreement, then we are sound, we're very inclusive and tolerant. If this were true, then we would all be condemned to sameness and uniformity. Well, look around the room. Look at the guy next to you, the lady next to you. We all look different. So, but naturally speaking, we don't naturally gather around people that are like us. Our tendency is to naturally gather around people who reflect and affirm back the same values as ourselves. We naturally hang out with people that are just like us. Same race, same class. But we are not a natural people, praise God. We are a supernatural people. We are God's people. And for that, we need to reflect God and God's ways. Christianity, our religion, has a lamentable record when it comes to slavery, racism, colonialism, and outright intolerance, especially so in the West in the last few centuries. Cities has formed bases for some of the institutions, structures, organizations, culture, our language, that shape our social, private, and public reality today. This is not to beat ourselves down as Christians, not at all. And none of us here should feel any guilt. It's not a guilt trip. However, we want the Holy Spirit to help us with conviction that leads to repentance and that as a family, we might want to engage and acknowledge a lived experience of some of our brothers and sisters that might be different from our experience. I arrived into the UK over 15 years ago and found out for the first time that I was black. I was not Nigerian anymore. Now, I accepted my new black nationality, and one day I walked into um, B&Q. I'd actually walked past an aisle with paints. I saw these lovely colors. So I took a step back, and I tried to check my shade with the description of the colors. It turns out B&Q doesn't describe me as black. They actually gave me some interesting, exotic color. <laughs> I suggest some of you need to check out what Bianchi describes you as. 
So when we look at the Bible, we see that God's kingdom has always been a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-class one. God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 2-3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you, Abraham, you will be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then God gives his command to Moses. And the people of Israel begin to gather around the commands of God. And they too are to be a blessing to the nations around them. In fact, in Exodus, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, the Bible says there were about 600,000 men that came out of Egypt. But the Bible also talks about a mixed multitude, a diverse multitude that came out of Egypt with the Israelites. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, a new covenant is formed. So the fulfillment of all of God's promises and plans are found in Christ Jesus. So right from the very beginning, this Jesus movement was multicultural, multi-class, multi-ethnic. Jesus himself, a Jew, don't forget, he scandalized his fellow Jews by reaching beyond gender, cultural, and racial boundaries. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan or the Samaritan woman at the world that Dio shared with us recently. See, this multicultural diversity really took off after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, the last word Jesus gave to his disciples were, go and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19. And boy, they did. See, as we read through the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God poured out on the followers of Jesus so that the gospel could begin this process of going out of the nations of the world. In Acts 2, 5 to 11, those who heard when Peter preached were Jews from every nation under heaven. So let me bring these people groups that's described here to our modern context. These are people from Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Palestine, Turkey, Egypt, Italy, Libya, Greece, Syria. These are the people groups being described here. So just keep this picture in your mind. We'll come back to this, hopefully. Then God calls Saul to faith, who becomes Apostle Paul with mission to the non-Jewish world. Paul plants loads of churches, writes all sorts of extraordinary things in his letters. To the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3.11, he writes, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, 
Setian. In fact, Setian means Iranian. And in Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, as we carefully read through the New Testament, we are struck by the multiracial, multicultural, multinational, multi-class element of it. See, sadly, for loads of people today, there is an idea that Christianity is a white Western religion. See, this idea perpetuates extremism, racism, classism, in fact, some Islamic leaders jump on these ideas well today. And we will have famous African-Americans like Malcolm X. This was his core message and belief. Muhammad Ali, the same message. Almost as though there should be need to worship blackness rather than Jesus. Jesus is the one to respond to. And now they think they're doing or making an attempt to redeem blackness. Now it's Black History Month this October. And, and whilst the contributions of black people to society at large, and specifically to the church, should not be limited to highlighting it once a year, because it is our collective family history. It's right that we just take a pause for a few moments and just tackle this idea that Christianity is white Western religion because it's absolutely not. Now, it's not that there's no connection between Christianity and Western culture. There clearly is. It's undeniable Christianity dominated Europe for many centuries and loads of Western culture is actually infused with Christian ideas and values. Many heroes of the faith are white Europeans. The great reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, men like Thomas Aquinas, they've not only significantly shaped the Western church, but the global church in the whole. But again, this does not make Christianity white or Western. So it's a common misconception that Christianity first came to Africa via white missionaries in the colonial era. Reading through the New Testament, first we see that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was actually a refugee in Africa when he was in mortal danger. You see the story in Matthew 2, 13 to 23. We see the Holy Spirit lead one of the early disciples called Philip to go down a road and convert an African. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, where this story leads into the interiors of Africa. For the Ethiopian eunuch is from present-day Sudan. Just a side thought. Was the eunuch a Jew or a Gentile? 
just leave that out there. See, I want to show that Christianity appears as though there is no birthright or permanent single culture of the Christian faith through history. See, it's difficult today for us to imagine countries like Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, Algeria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Turkey, Sudan, Libya as flourishing Christian places before Islam. See, for sake of time, uh, I would highlight a very short timeline of early Christian history. Now, I know some of us are excited because we love history, while some of us are already turned off like, oh dear, another history lesson. But just stick with me for a few moments. I'll just highlight something uh, uh, very quick. Because it's important that we know where we're coming from, because it shapes how we live our lives today. So many books have been written on this topic where many theologians that shaped the faith were born and bred in the African continent in the first few centuries of the Christian church. I will just show you a quick timeline, show you a quick map of Africa. This is the current map of Africa. And one of the guys that I want to introduce to you, the first guy I want to introduce to you very briefly, is called Augustine of Hippo in 354 AD. Augustine is from Numidia. If you have the next map, this is the old Mediterranean map of Africa. Numidia is present-day Algeria. So Augustine was actually the bishop of Hippo in Algeria. His writings influenced the development of the Western church and Western philosophy. Augustine is viewed as one of the most important church fathers. He formulated the doctrine of original sin, divine grace that we enjoy today. And he talked a lot about this predestination amongst other writings. His writings influenced many Protestants in later years, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Anglicans. They all referenced and quote this African Augustine. In 320 AD, um, I want to introduce you to two Syrian brothers, Prometheus and Odysseus. They are captured as slaves and they become civil servants in the kingdom of Aksum. These brothers convert many people to the faith, including the then king of Aksum, King Azana, who becomes Christian and declares his kingdom official religion as Christianity. Aksum is present-day Ethiopia and Eritrea. In fact, Prometheus then travels to the nearest big Christian city, Alexandria in Egypt, to inform Athanasius, who was then the bishop of Egypt, who was telling him about the developments that has happened in the kingdom of Aksum. Athanasius turns around, ordains this young Syrian man, and sends him back to the kingdom of Aksum to become its bishop. In fact, that tradition continues till today, where 
the bishop of Alexandria is the one that appoints and ordains bishops in Ethiopia. Athanasius then, this, oh, if you go to some of the pictures again, this African that appointed the, um, the bishop of Aksum is in fact the 20th bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, in Africa, in 295 AD. He wrote many theological books, especially on Trinity, and he defended the faith. Athanasius was actually at the Council of Nicaea, where church fathers assembled the books of the Bible that we use today. The other notable thing to point out about Athanasius is that he wrote the biography of the next guy I want to talk about, Anthony. Anthony is born in the countryside in Egypt in 251 AD. So Christianity at this time wasn't just uh, developed in cities and cosmopolitan areas. For Anthony was born in a Christian home in his village. Anthony is widely known as the father of monks because his biography that was written of him was later centuries brought to Europe to set up monasteries that helped the gospel flow and, in fact, the evangelization of Europe. Anthony actually wasn't even the first monk. <laughs> but what he had done is that he took on spiritual warfare by going to the devil's domain in the desert. So what I'm sharing with you is over 2,000 years of Christian history in Africa. That Christianity is still observed today in the continent. See, this Christianity is rural is vernacular, is radical and marked by a deep sense of the spirit world with an assurance of the victory of Jesus Christ in this world over all seen and unseen powers. In 202 AD, I introduce you very quickly to account of martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. See, all these guys I'm just highlighting to you, they are widely known in the global church as founding church fathers and mothers of the faith. Vibia Perpetua was a married noble woman. She was the mother of an infant, whilst Felicity was actually eight months pregnant when they both chose to die for their faith amongst others, in Tunisia. Januaria, Generosa, Vestia, Donata, Secundus. These are not names of African diseases. These are, in fact, all women that died for their faiths alongside others in 180 A.D., in Algeria, in Africa. See, I'm not trying to give you a ridiculous picture that everything in Africa was so rosy, everyone was singing Kumbaya, peace and harmony. For in 191 AD, I introduced you to our first black African emperor of 
Rome, from Libya, Septimus Severus. In fact, we, hold a, we had a whole dynasty of the Severus where his children ruled Rome, including one called Caracalla, interesting name, who became emperor in 211 AD after the death of his father. So because he was an emperor, he was involved in the persecution of Christians, though he was African. And the diversity and leadership in the world wasn't just a particular group of Africans reigning over uh, Rome. For in 217 AD, we have a West African called Macrinus from the West African country of Mauritania become emperor of Rome. In 189 AD, I introduced you to the first African Pope, Pope Victor. He was Bishop of Rome, the first to come from Africa. In fact, again, there were several other popes in Rome from Africa after him. The diversity in the world, Barack Obama has got nothing on these guys at all. <laughs> Some other quick notable names to wrap up to you is Origin of Alexandria. He produced over 6,000 works on multiple areas of theology. Didymus the Blind, one of my favorites. He was a student of origin. He became blind at age four before he learned to read. He had incredible memory and he found ways to help blind people read. He was already experimenting with carved wooden letters at this time, similar to the Braille system that we have for the blind today. Didymus was actually the head of the first seminary school. He was blind. 160 AD, I introduced you to Tertullian of Carthage from Tunisia, um, Cyprian of Tunisia, Clement of Alexandria from Egypt, all Africans. Between 50 to 95 AD, the Gospels are written, the first four books of the New Testament. Mark was the first to be written. In fact, it was written as an eyewitness account of Peter. Mark is African from Libya, born in the city of Pentapolis in Cyrene. In fact, Mark was also killed in Africa, in Egypt, in 68 AD. The early church actually gathered in the home of Mark's mom. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 12, where uh, Peter was in prison and then the church gathered to pray for his release. Peter got miraculously released from prison. He turns up to where the church was gathered praying. A young girl, Rhoda, goes to the door, finds out it was Peter, got so excited, didn't even let Peter in and runs back to tell the others, this is the home of an African. So less than 20 years after the death of Jesus, the church in Alexandria in Africa, Egypt, is already established by Mark as its first bishop. Mark, Apostle Mark, also established the church in Libya, his home country. 
Here are just some quick pictures. If you have any pictures of ruins or monuments from Libya, very similar to what you have in Rome. An African, Apollos, preaches a truncated form of Christianity in Ephesus, where he had a lovely couple, Priscilla and Aquila, say, hey, come, let's, let's, let's help you out. Let's, let's teach you more about God's Word. You find this account in Acts chapter 10. In fact, Apostle Paul famously writes in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted these African Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now it makes sense for us that Simon of Cyrene, a Libyan from Africa, carries the cross of Jesus. We see the story in Matthew, in Luke, and even in Mark. In fact, Simon's children were talked about in the Bible because they were Christian missionaries. See this again in Mark 15, 21. Africans from Libya and their compatriots from Cyprus are the ones that took the gospel to Antioch. You see this in Acts 11. And we see the diversity team, the leadership team in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Paul from Turkey, Tassos. Lucius from Libya. Barnabas from Cyprus. And as though we haven't gotten it enough, the Bible says, Black Simeon. This is the leadership team when they were praying and God says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas, for I have specific mission for them. So from the beginning of Christianity, there has been this wide diversity of people from different backgrounds, class, cultures, nations, as we've just seen from Scripture. See, at the beginning of the 19th century, over 70% of Christians were located in Europe and North Africa. Europe sent missionaries out to the rest of the world. The ones thriving churches are now bars and nightclubs. Now, I'm not picking on Scotland or the people of Aberdeen, but here is a picture of a once thriving church that sent out missionaries, now reduced to be called Ministry of Sin, a nightclub, an award-winning nightclub in Aberdeen. Where is the center of Christianity? My point is this. Christianity does not belong to any one creed, culture, or color. It's not Western or white. Neither is it African or Asian. See, the gospel is so entangled with our roots that we cannot claim it for one side only. Where are we going? Where is this thing going? See, Christianity has always, always been a multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-class movement since its inception. And this is where we are going. This is our future too. One day, we really will gather 
with a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Revelation 7, 9, and worship Jesus together, deeply diverse, yet deeply unified. See, I've got this bottle in my hand. Um, I'm able to read the text in front of me here, but I can't see what's on the other side. It's almost like I need someone else to help me read what's on this side. Now, if they come and join me here, then we're both looking at the same thing. But if they're on the other side looking at this bottle, then together we're able to make a whole sense of this bottle. Dave Holden would often challenge us and ask us that the things that we are focused on today, the things that we are passionate about, Will they count a thousand years from now? See, we love worship, and we should, because worship exists on this side of eternity, and we know worship would also exist on the other side of eternity. Diversity would exist on the other side of eternity. That's why it is vital. This is our DNA. We are part of a global movement of a global God. A God who loves diversity. A God who is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue. This is what we are a part of. It's exciting to know that we are part of God's eternal plans on the earth. We're supposed to be a sign of a coming fulfillment. A prophetic statement of what to come. Painting a picture for our community of this coming kingdom. I love Nando's. <laughs> um, but typically on a drive, say on a Sunday, taking my family to Nando's, as we're heading for lunch, you see there's church meetings. They've just finished the services and their meetings as they're coming out. As you're driving past, you see a group of people come out of their meeting, all homogeneous, white. As you drive past, you meet another group, all homogeneous, black. As you drive again, another group, all homogeneous coming out. It almost seems as though Sunday mornings is the most segregated time in our communities. Jesus is coming again. He's coming for his bride, the church says he wants to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That the church might be holy and without blemish. Bias, racism, classism is the blemish on the church. See, people that were once far off are now brought into our communities. Church has to reflect our community. Ephesians 3.10 says that we are the manifold wisdom of God on display, literally displaying the glory of God and the power of the gospel. This is what we are increasingly being, a multiracial, multi-class church in which people that have been historically divided are brought together in Christ that points to the mystery and the power of 
the gospel. Where we are going is where we've come from. Let's do life right here, right now. Why not join a community? Or get to know someone different from yourself. Don't just sit and talk to the same people week after week. The glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Or in James Silly's words, the best is yet to come. Praise God.